0: The concept of salvation from the penalty of our sins is one that has unfortunately been distorted even from the very beginning of its introduction. And when we consider the purpose and benefits, it can get even more so. Welcome to A Walk in the Word, where we bring you the Sunday sermons from Providence Baptist Church Gaston's worship services. In this week's sermon, Pastor John Friedrich takes a rebuke from John the Baptist To help us understand just what salvation is and isn't. Let's join in as Pastor Friedrich preaches a message entitled, The Snake Charmer, from Luke chapter 3.
1: Well, it's good to be gathered around God's Word this morning as we take a look at our passages and see what He has to say to us. So as I said, we're going to be in Luke 3. This morning we'll be reading verses 3 through 14. 3 through 14. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Esaias the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid upon, unto the root of the trees. And every tree therefore which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also publicans to be baptized, and he said unto the, to him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than which is appointed to you, um, appointed you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne this morning, we are thankful that we have opportunity to to sing the songs of Zion, to, to lift your praises in, in worship. And Lord, we thank you for that opportunity to glorify you with our words and our songs. And Lord, we just also ask now that as we step into your word that you would open our hearts and our minds to the truths that you have for us, that you would help us and give us wisdom and understanding of the things that you want us to take away from these passages this morning. Lord, it's truly a blessing and an honor to to dive into your word, to see an expression of yourself. And Lord, I know I'm not worthy to be the one to stand here and and to pass these words on to those that have gathered here or are at the sound of my voice, Lord. I just ask that you take me and use me as you see fit. Take away anything that could in any way interfere with the message, whether that be pride, distraction, selfishness, whatever it might be, Lord, just take it all away. And fill me with your spirit that the words that I speak were those of your doing and nothing of my own. And, Lord, help us as a church as we continue to move forward in the decisions that we face. Help us to make the right ones that are in accordance with your will, that we might always be doing the things that you want us to do as a church, that we might always represent you in every way possible, to to be your hands, your feet, your heart, and your voice, Lord. And, Lord, as individuals, show us opportunities to share your love, to share your gospel uh, to this lost and dying world that we are living in currently. And Lord, forgive us of the times that we've sinned against you and offended you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, these passages we're looking at this morning, uh, really, I mean, we could go on for days on the meaning and God's truth that are in them. And I wish we had time to explore more, but I'm going to focus this morning on the part that deals with John the Baptist's interaction with those that had approached him for baptism. Um, this whole thing begins with kind of an introduction to the grown John the Baptist who's now deep in ministry. As you remember, we were first introduced to John the Baptist all the way back to his conception, or prior to his conception, really. <clears throat> and now we're seeing him, and he's, he's in, the, in the heart of his ministry. He's out, he's preaching, he's baptizing. Um, he's blazing a path for the coming Messiah as God had set him on, the, on that road to do so. He was preaching the repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, and as I said, he was baptizing. So let's take a look at what's going on here. The passage says that a multitude of people had come to John to be baptized. So here's the picture. He's, he's there at the river, I assume. He maybe is already baptizing some people. And another group comes to him and asks to be baptized. And the account in the same event in Matthew, if we look at the other gospel, the parallel gospel of the same event, it says that this multitude that came to him included a number of Pharisees and Sadducees. So imagine the spectacle here now. Throngs of people are coming, uh, gathered around John. John was, like I said, in the river baptizing. Great joy was expressed by those who had repented and received the baptism uh, that John was offering. And uh, I'm sure there were many that were curious and had gathered around and were watching what was going on as this other group of people comes forward and asks John to be baptized. Now, it would seem yet the contagious joy had maybe spread amongst those others that had come forward. And ask John this question. He suddenly turns to them, though, and says something very curious. He turns to them and says, O oh, generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, this isn't exactly the response you would expect for somebody who would come forth for baptism. I mean, imagine this picture. Imagine, let's put it in a modern-day context. Invitational hymn is playing. We're all standing there singing the song. Somebody comes forward to make a profession of faith perhaps. And the pastor challenges them. Why have you come forward? Who warned you about this? Why are you even up here? Now I don't think that that's the scene that most people would have expected in this case. I don't imagine a pastor would ever really say anything like that, to be honest. But it's clear from our passage that John the Baptist had been given spiritual discernment to understand the legitimacy of the request of this group of people that had come to him. It's possible, even in our modern day, that people come forward for the wrong reasons. It's a fear that we, as pastors, always have? Is this person really coming forward for the proper reason? Is he come or he or she coming forward because they're caught up in the emotions of the moment? Are they coming forward for this reason or that reason? Or are they legitimately felt the spirit moving upon them and giving them a new life? And you may ask yourself, well how could somebody who goes and does this perhaps even lives a life afterwards that mirrors or mimics of somebody who has given their life to Christ, how could they possibly not be saved? Why would somebody go through all these motions that didn't have the Holy Spirit in them? Well, to this end, I remind you of the very words of Jesus himself. Remember, Jesus made the comment that in the day of judgment, there would be those who would fit this mold. In Matthew 7, 22 and 23, we hear, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me that work iniquity. Now this is a kind of a shocking verse when we take a look at it. It's a bit eye-opening because it makes us recognize that there are things that can be done seemingly in the power of God, seemingly for the purposes and glory of God, that are counterfeits and will not hold up in the day of judgment. And what's more shocking is it, it tells us that will be many, and in Jesus' own words, many who have apparently lived a life of service, a life seemingly dedicated to Jesus, who will be denied an entry into heaven to be with the Lord. And that's a scary and saddening thing to consider to wonder how many of those over the years that we have all seen in churches that perhaps are not saved after all. So it's my prayer therefore that those of you that are here today, those of you that perhaps are at the sound of my voice, will, will take a deep introspection, a deep look at your own situation, your own spirituality, to determine the motivations, the beliefs that prompted you whatever time, whether it was recently or long ago, to make a profession of faith. And what's more, for those who have never acknowledged Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, it's my prayer that maybe through this you'll experience the life-changing conviction and movement of the Holy Spirit that brings about the final realization of your need for him, your need for Jesus Christ. So let's jump back and let's take a look again, once again at John the Baptist's response to those who had come to be baptized. John apparently saw something in their hearts that made him realize that their motivations were completely off mark, that they were completely insincere in the reason for why they had approached him and asked him for baptism. I don't doubt that they really wanted to be baptized, but the reasons behind it The motivations for why they had approached John the Baptist for baptism are what was apparently in question. Now, the things that we can draw out of this serve as both a warning and guidance for those who perhaps in the past have made professions of faith or those in the future. But don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to discourage in any way, shape, or form anyone from making a profession of faith. It's just that we need to be sure our motivations are sincere. And we can have confidence that in the day of judgment that it will stand up. And we won't hear those words that we just read of Jesus's. And the first thing we need to draw out of what John the Baptist was challenging them about was that it is not a supposed, let's call it fire insurance, or just in case. And I think this is an area where a lot of people will, will fall. Hell, let's face it, is a horrible, horrible place. And I think a lot of pastors tend to shy away from talking about hell simply because of the, the sheer unpleasantness of the topic. It is a place of torment. It is a place of misery. it is a place of eternal separation from God. And it is a, it is a place of regret. And there's many, many aspects of it that make it a, a place of suffering. And the suffering will never end. When we grasp the reality of the horror and the permanency of hell, it brings to mind something that I, I, I read uh, a little while back. I was reading a book by a prominent pastor who came face to face with some of the harder questions regarding hell and those who end up there. I mean, he was facing and, and struggling with this concept uh, of those who experience a physical hell in this world today, somebody whose life... Uh, is one that's subjected to perhaps abuse or whatever throughout their lifetime only to go on to an eternal hell because they were never told the name of Jesus Christ. And he was discussing his thoughts with this missionary friend of his uh, that he was visiting and this was the missionary's response in, in, that, in that concept. He says, I don't know anybody who believes in hell that doesn't struggle at some concept, at some level with that belief. Some level of under trying to understand how is it that somebody can experience a physical hell in this world only to go on to a further hell. That if there's no struggle with you and what you believe about hell then you really don't believe in hell. And when you think about it that makes sense because when we consider the absolute horrors of hell when we realize just how bad it is we are all going to struggle at some point with people going there. Not that we're questioning God's legitimacy or God's validity for his decisions, but rather just struggling with the concept of people going to that kind of level of eternal suffering. But if we make a profession of faith simply because we're trying to avoid hell, if that is a pure motivation, we just don't want to go to hell, then we're missing the whole point. That's tantamount to wanting a get-out-of-jail-free card to be cashed in at the end of a life, serving ourselves, doing what we want, saying, okay, I'm at the end of the road now, here's my get-out-of-jail-free card. Even if that means we participated in the things of the kingdom of God throughout our lifetime. It's like we're carrying around this thing that it doesn't matter what we do here, I'm getting out of jail free. I'm avoiding hell. Our salvation experience, though, should be driven by how our sinfulness relates to God and what it means regarding our position before God, not simply what happens to us as a result of that. Read Isaiah 59, 2. It says, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. It's interesting, my brother came to visit yesterday and uh, some of the things that we were talking about, we were talking about some things in scripture and one of the things he brought out was when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, how he was fearful and what it was that he was fearful about. Well, for the first time in eternity past, the consideration of separation between God the Father and God the Son was a reality. Jesus saw this coming, perhaps was even given a preview, and he was terrified about it. Hell is eternal separation from God. If Jesus, the Son of God, was shaken by that thought, how much more so should we be terrified by that thought? Not the suffering so much, but the separation from God. Frankly, it's self-serving to want salvation just to avoid hell. That's being selfish. I just don't want to suffer. Thinking like this is keeping ourselves in the focus that becomes salvation is all about us. When in reality, it's all about Him. Now, we're certainly the benefactors of it. We certainly benefit from the work that Jesus did. But ultimately we've got to remember that the cross and the work of the cross was intended to ultimately bring glory to God. That God would benefit. Now another improper approach was more more directly what John was blasting the Pharisees and Sadducees about. Now the idea of baptism wasn't something that typically applied to the Jews. Baptism at the time it did exist but not in the context that we think of it. Only the Gentiles would have been familiar with it in this sense because only under the conditions as an outsider who wanted to become a Jew would baptism come into play. It was part of when a Gentile decided they wanted to become a Jew, then their baptism would be involved in that. But John's statement was likening the Jewish religious leaders to a bunch of snakes that were scurrying out of a brush fire With John saying to them, who warned you that the bushes were on fire? Who told you that? Where did you hear that from? What gave you that idea? They came to be baptized not because of a spirit-driven change that they felt within themselves but rather because they were worried that perhaps maybe John really had some validity to what he was saying. Maybe he was right. Maybe he was true. So I'm going to play it safe. I'm just going to hedge my bets, so to speak. Maybe there's some truth to it, so maybe we ought to get baptized, is the thinking. They were covering all their bases, so to speak. How many of you think nowadays have that very same mindset? You know, there might be some truth to that. So, I'm going to go through the motions. I'm going to make that profession of faith, you know, just in case. Just in case there's some truth to it. To some, that may sound like a stretch, but I assure you, there are some that think like that. In fact, the Bible giving us an example of that thinking nearly 2,000 years ago. And God wouldn't have given us that insight if there weren't some possibility of that going on today. One must understand and believe that our sinful, unholy, unrighteous position before a sinless, holy, righteous God puts us in a position where we need to understand why we need salvation. In order for us to get right with God, we must first understand and admit that we're not right with God. This goes back to the old saying that we've used before, you've got to get lost before you can get saved. You have to clearly recognize your position before God as a sinner, unredeemed, Unable to redeem yourself in any way, shape, or form to God before you can recognize that need that you have. And this doesn't legitimately happen when we reason, well, maybe that's true, so I'm going to do this. It's a deep conviction that says, I know this is true. The next thing that John's talking about in his confrontation here is that salvation is not transferable. Now, you may look at this and say, well, that's a no-brainer, obviously. I can't take my salvation and give some to you or whatever. You can't pass your salvation on to someone else. That's you know, Salvation 101, that's one of the first things you learn. At times there are things that say to stress this truth, like God has no grandchildren or there are no second-generation Christians. And while these certainly ring true, I want to peel it back just another layer and see perhaps... There's another line of thinking similar to that that could lead somebody into a false sense of security. (coughs) Think of somebody who was raised in a Christian home, made to go to church, encouraged to participate in church activities, maybe even prompted to hold some sort of position within the church. Thinking by default, this would... Mean the person must be saved. That's an obvious misconception. But as I said, let's take it a little deeper. There may be some that have fallen in this pattern. You've been in the church for years. You've been active. You've been faithful time and again. You've seen others surrender their lives to the Lord and make professions of faith. Maybe it's simply because of others who attend with you. Maybe even some of your friends. And then one day, you say to yourself, You know what? I need... I've never made a profession of faith. I need to do that too. So you go forward, maybe pull somebody aside, say, I need to be saved. You know all the things that you should say. You've heard it so many times before, so you come before the church, get baptized, and off you go. The box is checked. And you count yourself among the saints. But what has changed? What has really changed in you? Have you done it just because it's expected? What has changed within you to indicate that you're saved? You're on the church rolls and maybe people even look at you a little differently. Feeling pretty good about yourself, having taken the initiative to make a public statement. But all that's really happened is you've been pulled along by the current of expectation. Expectation. And that revolutionary, radical change that occurs in genuine salvation, and the impact it has on us, just isn't there. Well, what change, kind of change, am I talking about? What am I alluding to here? Remember what Paul tells us about the salvation experience and the kind of impact it should have on us. In Second Corinthians five seventeen, it says, "Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is what a new creature." Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. This speaks to a radical change in an individual when they get saved. Things aren't like they used to be. You don't just keep humming along like everything's the way it was before. The change is internal. Don't miss this. This does not simply mean that you were lost before and you're shaved afterwards. This means that there's a clear, unmistakable change in you that brings about what we're going to talk about next. And that is that salvation is transformational. Transformational. A lot of times we look at what John is alluding to here to the people he's addressing. And it's interesting, and we'll talk about this, he, he gets into addressing specific groups of individuals as they ask him. And a lot of people say, well, that's Jesus telling them how to be good. But there are three different groups that come to John and ask the same question. What shall we do? This is the same question he gets asked by different individuals Groups of individuals. And this follows a powerful analogy by John regarding the fruitless tree. He paints an image of an axe ready and waiting to drop any tree that fails to produce fruit. And what was the point of John's statement then? What was he getting at? Was it that we're supposed to work hard to be good after salvation experience? That our works are necessary Does it fulfill our salvation? No, John's point was clear that our actions after salvation are the validation of a legitimate salvation experience. Meaning, the proof is in the pudding. Who we are afterwards and who we were before says it all. Now, each group comes to him and he targets things that were considered normal or acceptable behaviors within each group when they really weren't. One group that comes to him are the publicans. Remember, publicans were who? They were the tax collectors, right? Publicans, it was normal for them to charge beyond what was required to subsidize their own lives. They would this how much tax you needed to pay? No, I'm gonna charge them this much because I wanna fill my pockets. This was a common, even almost acceptable practice of the publicans of the day, even though it wasn't right. That's one of the reasons why they were so hated. Remember Matthew, who became an apostle? What did he do for a living? He was a publican, he was a tax collector. Another group that came to him was the soldiers. Now, the poor pay that the Roman soldiers had kind of put them in a position where they would, once again like the publicans, try to find ways to subsidize themselves. They would find ways to extort money out of other individuals, meaning threaten them. They would use violence even sometimes to supplement their incomes. And it was acceptable in many people's eyes, but was it right? Mm-mm, it wasn't. It had become so commonplace; people were willing to accept that kind of behavior. They knew it was a part of it, and it in part was part of why they felt so uh, harsh about the Roman rule over them, because they were not being treated fairly. The Israelites. So the soldiers would do this. And with the everyday man, to stop being focused on self and begin to see and act upon the needs of others at their own expense was what John was trying to get through to them. Both the publicans and the soldiers were told to act in a manner that put themselves aside and focused on the needs of others. Their actions before were entirely self-focused. I want money from my pockets. I want to subsidize my lifestyle. I want to have money, money, money so that I can do what I want. I don't care what expense it took or what it did to other people. I want their money so I can do what I want. It was all self-focused. John flipped it on him and said, okay, if you are genuinely saved, then that is going to be reversed. You are going to want to help other people with what you have, even to the point of being sacrificial in doing so. We would need, see and act on the needs of others. But John wasn't saying these are the things you do to be saved. He wasn't saying this was something that was necessary that brought about your salvation. Once again, no, he was saying that these are things that are evidence of a change. You will act this way if you are saved. Not that you will act this way to be saved. Ephesians 4:22 that you put off concerning the former conversation of the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lust. Once again, we're seeing an example of you take the old and it goes away. You're not the same person. You're somebody different. The things that you thought were okay to do before that really weren't will bother you now. You see, in understanding our position before God, it involves understanding God's view of what we do. Not what everybody else thinks. Like I said, these actions of the Pharisees or the publicans and the soldiers had become so commonplace it was accepted, really. Much like the sin we see today in many people, it has become so commonplace that many find it acceptable now. But as my parents used to say when I was growing up, and I've probably said it a few times myself with my kids, if everybody else is doing it and they wanted to jump off a cliff, would you do that too? Just because everybody else is doing it doesn't make it a good choice. doesn't make it right. But once, once we experience the life-changing movement, of the spirit in our lives that brings about that transformation into, as Paul called it, a new creature. We view sin as repulsive. It's not something we like anymore. Oh yeah, we may fall into its trap. We may fall and and allow ourselves to be led down that path. But when we do so, we are repulsed by it. We don't see it as, Ugh, I got away with it. Even if nobody knows about it, we're repulsed because we know it offends God. Our view of sin now is intertwined with how God sees sin and how it makes us unacceptable and filthy before him. How he finds it offensive to the point of hating it. Let's be clear, God hates sin. Make no mistake about it. He's not going to say, oh well, that's not that big of a deal. He's not going to look the other way and ignore it like it never happened. God hates sin. Period. Small, little, big, huge, whatever. He hates it. Whether it's known or not. And His holiness prevents us from abiding in His presence as a result of that. We have an entirely different view of sin when we are saved. Romans 6 6 says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, and hence that henceforth we should not serve sin. And with that, shift in sin is a shift in focus. A shift in focus from ourself to others. It's interesting that John addresses each of those who ask what they should do and through the answers given shows them that they are to turn away from the life they were so familiar with, the life that they had become so accustomed to, the life that they knew was over. The things that were okay weren't anymore. The life that they had was gone and they should be happy about it. They shouldn't long for those days when things were as they were. They should look at those days and say, I am glad that's behind me. I am glad I'm not that person anymore. And all of it was connected to how they treated others in relation to material things in their lives, Quite honestly, a lot of times, they one of the most telling areas when it comes to the fruits of salvation. And some James, in the book of James, is covered quite extensively in, that, in the, his book. That salvation with fruit is likely not the kind of faith that brings about eternal life. Not because the works are necessary, but because the works are the proof of the change. A lot of people get tangled up in the words that James says where he's talking about works and salvation. And they try to say, well, he's saying that you have to work out your salvation, that works are what brings about salvation. But no, what he is saying, and he's hammering over and over and over again, is that works, the good works, are the result of your salvation. Now, can someone do good and be a moral person without salvation? Yeah, to a certain extent. But to have a life that is truly surrendered to Christ is only possible a life that is devoted to serving others comes about as a result of the life-changing salvation that only God can give. So it's important for us all to take a look at ourselves today. It's important for us to take an examination of our internal self and say, what was the motivation for my salvation? Was it because my friends came forward And we're getting baptized? Was it because I got caught up in the excitement of the moment? Or was it because I felt the Holy Spirit move in my life and tell me the old man is dead? That the way things were are no longer to be. Because it is imperative that we understand our position before God is a hopeless sinner, worthy of damnation, understanding that we would forever be without God. See, we need to be careful about when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior of understanding that avoidance of hell isn't the reward. Entrance to heaven is not the reward. Jesus himself is the reward. And the beauty of that is that we receive Jesus even now. We don't have to wait until we enter through the gates of heaven. So we repent of our sins, we embrace the truth that we are without hope outside of the work of the cross of Jesus Christ and we embrace the reward of God and Jesus Christ Himself. And live a life spent glorifying Him. Is that how we see our lives now? Do we live life saying, I'm glad I'm saved because I'm not going to go to hell? Or do we live our life saying, I'm glad I'm saved because I can bring glory and honor to Jesus. I can serve the Lord and bring glory and honor to Him. That is a life truly surrendered to God. So I would ask ourselves today to take a look at where we are spiritually and ask ourselves where we are. And if we approached John the Baptist today baptizing and asked to be baptized, what kind of reaction would we get out of him? Would we be in that group of individuals he called snakes? Or would we be one of the individuals that he gladly took down into the water, knowing that our motivations were pure, sincere, and that God was what we really wanted. Let's stand as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne, we are thankful for the words which we have heard today. We thank you for your truths that it presents to us, Lord. Lord, I just ask that you help us to discern in our own hearts where we are with you. And where we stand before you. Help us to understand the necessity of our need for Jesus Christ and the work of the cross. Help us to understand that our motivations need to be pure and motivations need to be focused on you. And Lord, help us to help others see that very same need. That they might come to a saving knowledge of you as well. That you ultimately might be glorified in all that happens as a result of that lord just help lead guide and direct everything that we do that our lives might be pleasing to you and point others to you we pray this in jesus name amen
0: thank you for joining us today tune in next time for another walk in god's word podcasts are available in apple podcast google podcast amazon music and audible Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, CastBox, DownCast, and Beyond Pod. Search for and subscribe to Providence Baptist Church space hyphen space Gaston Sermons. Until next time, may God bless you as we await His joyful return.
1: Hi, this is John Friedrich, pastor of Providence Baptist Church. It's my prayer that our time together has helped you grow in your walk with God, or maybe He's even used it to guide you to discover the wonderful gift of salvation. If you're ever in our area, we would love for you to come worship with us. Our address is Providence Baptist Church, 977 Meadowfield Road, Gaston, South Carolina, 29053. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so through our website at www.providencembcgaston.com or email us at ProvidenceNBCGaston at gmail.com. Again, thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to you joining us next time as we take a walk in the Word.